What's up, everyone? I hope you're doing well today. This is Rafael Garcia here with Schwan Humes for episode 137 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Today is Thursday, October 2nd, and the fall season is officially here. It's cooling down a little bit in D.C., even though it was like 98 degrees the other day, but it's cooling down a little bit in D.C. Schwan, how are things looking out where you are? Man, it's hot. <laughs> it's just hot all the time. I work in a stone quarry in a building that's all stone and has poor ventilation. So I'm just constantly either baking inside or cooking outside of it. It's it's ridiculous. I did not know that's what you did for uh, your nine to five, man. We, one day we yeah, have to do a whole show about that. Yeah, I, I'm I'm just there. In the meanwhile, I work in the office, but they got you doing. I'm I'm loading up rim tires, eighteen wheeler tires. I just they, they it's a small company, so you have to do a little bit of everything. So it's just like, it's always busy. Like, even when it's slow, it's just busy. People are like, you work in an office. Why are you so dirty? I'm like, throwing out 18-wheel tires from the back of a truck, man. <laughs> so at least keeps you in shape. It's interesting. Do... Okay, okay. At least you get that much out of it, man. We all got to do what we got to do. And that also translates into, into the world of mixed martial arts, which, which we are here to talk about because we have... Couple of news items, nothing major to cover today from a, from a news standpoint, but definitely some things I want to hit upon. But we do have a pretty big um, event this weekend where that we I want us to talk about, especially this main event, which is pretty intriguing. Uh, we also have an interesting fight over there in Bellator too. I want to want us to look at, and boxing has a pretty big match as um, Triple G is returning this weekend. So we got quite a bit to turn, talk about, and let's go ahead and jump right in. Let's start with. Um, UFC Fight Night 160. Let's kind of hit back at that, this event that was last Saturday, the 28th, where Jared Cannonier continues to go on his run and he defeats Jack Hermanson. Um, Cannonier is 35 years old and he seems to be turning a corner that a lot of people do not turn at this age. In fact, more often than not, when we talk about 35 to 40 year old fighters, especially in middleweight, we often talk about them turning the corner towards retirement, where it seems like Kenanier is turning the corner towards getting better and uh, performing um, higher and continuing to excel. So, Schwan, let's talk about this, man. What do you think about Kenanier at 35 years old and this victory here? What did it really mean for him, and what is his ceiling at this point in time? Well, it really just told us what we already know about him. He's an explosive, very strong, athletic, power-punching fighter. I mean, when we talked about the fight before, we're like, if Hermanson can pressure him, get him into grappling exchanges, he's going to either win by decision, grinding him out, or he's going to finish him. If Hermanson can't get him to the positions he wants at all, or he can't get to those positions without getting blasted on the way in, he's going to get stopped. I mean, that that's really that's all this too. A Cannoneer is a very average wrestler. He's a very average grappler, but when you have his dynamic physical ability, you can explode into and out of positions. Your takedown defense doesn't have to be technically perfect because you have the explosiveness, the balance, the coordination to kind of cover for the lack of the lack of uh, maybe technique you have in in takedown defense. And when it, if it was pure wrestling, he wouldn't be able to get by it. Pure grappling probably wouldn't get by on it. But when you mix in knees, punches, kicks. And you have to respect those things. The technical deficiencies can be masked by athletic ability, and that's basically what he does. He can explode in positions. He can force. He can get the underhooks and yank guys up. He used to be a heavyweight. He's used to moving two hundred and twenty and thirty pound guys. Moving one eighty five guys ain't nothing to him. 
So his physical abilities and his physical tools allow him to make up for the lack of finesse and the lack of technical structure in his overall grappling, his overall wrestling, and even his overall striking. His striking is not particularly great. He's just so dynamic. He can fight in these big spots and blow you out. He's kind of like a kind of like a a less accomplished Anthony Johnson. Like if he would have went to middleweight, functional wrestler, functional grappler, but such a dynamic athlete, he can handle himself against superior people who are superior in those two realms. And his striking isn't super technical, but with his timing and his physicality and his explosiveness, he's a danger to, to anybody, even even the best technicians. So you mentioned something that I don't think I've heard a lot of other people talk about, and that's the fact that he moved down from heavyweight to light heavyweight to middleweight. What does that transition have? What does that transition have? What has that transition done? Do you think for his career? Oftentimes we see fighters go the other way as their career progresses and not actually drop down. What do you think that moving down, losing all that weight? has done for him at one point in time you know we've read about this that he was a 300 pound flight attendant before he got into mma so what are your thoughts about how dropping weight classes has impacted his uh, career well when you move up in weight what you're thinking what you're basically saying is i feel my skills are at such a point that it can make up for any lack of technical or strategical ability that i have because my skills are, are so high level i'm so far above the curve i can manage I can manage the weight, uh, the weight, the weight gap. Kind of like Sarah Kaufman, she went to PFL. She's so much more experienced than these girls. She's submitting girls when she's not really that level of grappler in mixed martial arts. She's dominating them off of skill and experience because she's so far ahead of them. That's the in the case of Cannoneer, he's he's probably in his best shape now. But the fact of the matter is, this is probably the weight he should be competing at because he at his at heavyweight he's much faster. He's much more explosive. But his natural frame probably isn't as big as it needs to be. And at heavyweight, those guys are bigger. They can take the power a little bit better. And they're physically stronger, so it's harder to get a 250, 260-pound man off you when he belongs in the weight and you don't. Even at light heavyweight, light heavyweight are just smaller heavyweights who are basically cutting down to use their size and athletic advantage at a lower weight. At middleweight, he's going to be a big middleweight. And not just is he a big middleweight. He's a very big middleweight who has huge advantages in physical strength and explosiveness. So he doesn't have a heavyweight's frame, but now he's not having to move heavyweights around. Take take the comparison of a Jessica Andrade. At Bantamweight, Jessica Andrade could do some dynamic things because she was so strong. She was so physical. But moving girls who are 140 or 150 when they come into the cage that night, that kind of neutralized her strength and her explosiveness. You move her down to strawweight where she's fighting girls who are her weight or maybe a little bit lighter, she's tossing them all over the cage. Five rounds in a row, three rounds in a row, just crushing them, knocking them around, dominating them, because now she's not facing that extra weight. Now she's fighting at a weight class that's closer to her natural size, where her physical attributes are the determining factor. Now his attributes are the determining factor, because he's fast for middleweight, he's super strong for middleweight, and he hits super hard for middleweight. So really, all his attributes have been magnified because he's facing lesser athletes and smaller and physically weaker athletes. That's some that's some good thoughts there, man. I hadn't really heard it broken down yet in that sense. Uh, what do you think is next for him? He's calling for a title shot. Do you think that's next? I mean, I'm not necessarily against him having a title shot because middleweight middleweight is such a hodgepodge of fighters. You know, it's. I mean, there's not, there's very few standout middleweights. The only thing with Cannoneer is, 
I don't know that he has any. What do you call them? He didn't. He didn't. He didn't have any standout wins. Like real. I mean, he beat David Branch. Was David Branch ever considered an elite middleweight? No. He beat Anderson Silva, but that was more of an injury to Anderson Silva. If I recall that fight correctly, Anderson Silva was actually holding up pretty well against Cannonier, kind of moving him with feints and pot shotting him. The the win against Hermanson is a big win, but it didn't show that he's resolve the issue the holes he has in his game and if he's just going to try and get by on physical strength and explosiveness we got guys that could match that paula costa yo romero but there's also guys who got physicality and have enough of a wrestling game and have enough of a striking and, and grappling game where they can transition where they can get him to the spots that he doesn't want to go to so it's like i haven't seen him face a guy of comparable athleticism and win i haven't seen him face a guy who who's strong in the areas he's weak in and have him win when he fought when he fought Reyes, Reyes was able to beat him. He's a comparable athlete. When he fought um, Glover Teixeira, Glover Teixeira is such a better wrestler, such a better wrestler and grappler than him. He clearly beat him. So we ha- we didn't learn anything new about him. I still so I still don't think he's effective if you can take him down and force him into grappling exchanges. I still don't think he's that great of a striker. He's got good timing and explosive power. I don't think he's particularly layered. He's not defensively sound. He's just a guy who's not afraid to take chances. And usually guys with his athletic ability usually aren't afraid of taking chances. We still don't know much about him. But in the middleweight division that's kind of topsy-turvy, you're never more than two or three fights away from a title shot anyways. What would you do with him next? Who would you put him against? I guess maybe the winner of Gastelum Till. Okay, that's a good pick there. I hadn't heard anyone talking about that one yet. Um, That'll be an interesting fight that I'm looking forward to us talking about at some point in time in the future. Uh, let's talk about Mark Madsen, who also had a good performance on Saturday. What are your thoughts about him? He's another guy, older gentleman, stepping in to the cage and getting the job done. He also has a Olympic experience from a Greco-Roman standpoint, too. What are your thoughts about him? Um, it really just, once again, shows you that uh, how how legitimate it is to have a wrestling pedigree. I mean, when you're a high level... Not even high level wrestler, because I I've grappled I've grappled and I've done sparring with guys who wrestled in high school, wrestled community college, even junior college, uh, and uh, just the the habits it builds in you because nobody like you can do boxing as a you know as a recreational sport, kickbox recreational, jujitsu recreational, MMA recreational. People who do wrestling are doing it to compete. Like even if you don't make the team to compete. You're in the wrestling room having to actively compete. You're rolling with the best guys in your school, if not the best guys in your state, if, they, if your school has them. So it's a purely competitive sport, so it develops a sense of competition and a physical toughness and a grind that you can't find anywhere else because the only way you can get that level of experience in wrestling is if you actually are going to compete in wrestling. You know, it, it, There's just no way around it. You have to go through all the practice. You have to go through the the conditioning, you have to go through all the mental stuff necessary to compete, whether you make it or not. You have to be a part of that. And this is an example of a guy who's able to translate all that toughness, all that aggression, all, all that ability to execute under pressure, and he was just able to uh, funnel it into the cage. I mean, he's a world-class athlete, and the guy he was facing isn't wasn't an elite fighter, so I can't say it's super impressive from that point, but just given his age and given the fact that he's not terribly, terribly experienced at the highest level of mixed martial arts, you don't expect him to come in and do that kind of thing. You've seen many wrestlers of comparable degrees get smoked, if not just knocked out or choked out coming in. And for him to have a debut like that and perform so dominantly, it just it goes it gives credit to the kind of character, endurance, and physical and mental toughness that wrestling develops in people. 
and I'm not even wrestling. I'm just talking about my experience sparring them and grappling. It's always hell. Seven stages of hell. I'll tell you this. As someone who's wrestled for 20-some-odd years of, of my life, yes, you are 100% right. It is hell on earth. It's funny because I look at some of the younger wrestlers that come into the gym where I teach and train now, and you can just tell, like, these are these are going to be some of the hardest rounds in the world, even if even if these individuals don't actually, like, haven't been training jujitsu for a long time, you know that this this round is going to suck, and it's going to be a long one. But, um, yeah, I definitely agree the, with the, you physicality. The, the physicality. The physicality is totally, just, totally different. Yeah. Yeah, I had a kid. He he was like a, a state champion, or whatever. And then we we're just grappling around. We we're kickboxing, but mixing it all together. You know, I'm just popping him, staying on the outside. He put his hands on me, and I'm just like, "Good lord, this is awful." And I've I wrestled with a lot of people, and you get used to it, but it's just like it's just different. Even from a Brazilian jiu-jitsu sambo, there's just something different about that grip and that the, the way they grind and you put that cross face on you. It's like, dude, just tap, get me out of here. I don't need to be doing this to myself. I got kids at home, man. I need to be doing this. I got kids at home, man. That's the truth. Um, let's talk about one other person, too, as well. Gilbert Burns. He had a pretty solid win over Gunnar Nelson on Saturday. Let me ask you a question. Is this win more indicative of Gilbert's growth or Gunnar not being a complete fighter? Uh, Gunnar's not a complete fighter. I mentioned this before. He's still a traditionally trained striker. His defense is like Stephen, Tom- Stephen Thompson, which is why I never saw I don't know why they never fought. He was a national champion in karate at one point, Gunnar Nelson. His whole defense is his athleticism, quickness, reaction time, and his ability to manipulate defense. He has that lead, long stance, which allows you to explode in, explode out on angles, come straight in and angles, get in, land that quick shot and get out. He doesn't telegraph. That's why his hands are low, because they're below your eyesight. So when he comes up, the strike comes up, it's under your eyesight. So when it's coming out, you can't really register it. And his ability, he, he, his stance, doesn't telegraph, so it's hard to read him to gauge him. But once you get the timing on it, you can counter him easily, you can take him down. He doesn't really have any medium-range defense in his striking because he doesn't really box. He's pretty much a straight-up karate guy, which is fine at range. It's not great in between range. It's not great in close range. And one thing he's always kind of like, as good an athlete as he is, he's never been the most physical fighter. And when guys have been able to physically put something on him or physically bully him and kind of extend him, he always tends to lose. You saw it against Rick Story. Rick Story just kind of muscled him and roughed him up and walked him down, kind of got the got the time he figured out what his tools were and just chopped him down. You saw it against Ponzinibbio. Ponzinibbio dumbed him, but he still was exploiting the hole in his in his stance. Maya was able to grapple him and just grind him out. Maya's a high-level grappler, but a lot of what Maya did was just him physically imposing his will. It was technically, he did it with te- technique, but he was physically imposing himself on Gunner, and Gunner was accepting those exchanges instead of trying to force scrambles, defend, and get back to his feet and take it to where his advantage was. So he has clear holes in his game in the transitions from strikes to grappling, and his clear holes in his game strategically engaging in fights that he really can't win. And this was exposed against Burns. Burns has shown a poor gas tank. Burns has shown the inability to, to maintain a pace, especially when a pace is forced on him. And Gunner kind of let Burns dictate the range and dictate the pace. He never forced him to get out of his comfort zone. He never forced him to really defend or be under duress. He never forced him to work. So Gunner was able, so Burns was able to pick his spots, use his size and physicality, and take away essentially Gunner's any athletic advantage he has, any power advantage Gunner has, and exploit every single hole he has. He just chopped him down, backed him up, walked him down, took him down, and roughed him up. I mean, it, it was just a bad fight plan, and Gunner had no adjustment. He didn't do anything from beginning to end. 
he didn't do anything. He let Gilbert be the boss, and Gilbert slowly pick him apart and break him down. So do you think that Gilbert is growing into someone who should fight a top 10 opponent now? Let me see where he's ranked. Um, so I'm interested in seeing that. Let me see one second. Gilbert is ranked. If we look at the... Because uh, the, he moved, moved up to featherweight, and he's been doing pretty well there. He's 2-0, and I think, at featherweight. And he called out Neil Magny, who's ranked number 15. What do you think about that fight? I mean... It's a good fight. I mean, Magny's, if I was somebody, I'd pick Magny. Magny's a guy who's skilled, he's experienced, but he has a problem with high-end fighters. He has a problem with high-end athleticism. It's dangerous because Magny's a tough enough guy, and he's, he's experienced enough that he can survive rough spots. And if you can't finish him and you blow your energy in that one big spot, then you're basically his. He's going to walk you down. He's probably going to finish you. But the good thing about Magny is he's not defensively, he, he's not defensively slick, and he's not much of an athlete. Usually when he faces high-class athletes, every high-class athlete has a chance of getting him out of there. It's just a matter of whether you're precise enough and consistent enough and smart enough to not extend, overextend yourself in trying to get him out of there. If you can't get him out immediately, you just ride out the, ride out the round, win the round, and chop him down round by round. But people who are athletic beasts tend to, oh, I, I got him with a big shot. Let me just finish him right now. Then they wear themselves out, and now you might be the better athlete but you can't do anything because you're so tired and now he just chops you down and takes advantage of the technical holes you have in your game. So it's a good fight because Magny's not a big puncher. He's not very dynamic. He's not the greatest finisher. It's a bad fight because he's a very seasoned, tough, gritty survivor. And if you put yourself in a spot where you're getting tired around Neil Magny, I can almost guarantee that's going to be marked down as a loss for you. Yeah, and I would be interested in seeing how Gilbert uh, performs in such a fight there. Um, I really kind of picked on him because I, I, we talked about him not competing in ADCC, which is what he was supposed to be doing um, this past week. And we'll talk about that kind of briefly later on today. But what else from this card stood out from you or to you on Saturday, Shawan? Kind of dive into that a little bit. Is there anything else special that you saw? Um, well, there's two things I would say. Um, Ovink St. Prue winning by the Von Flu show. It's funny because people were talking about on Twitter how He's used the choke more times than the guy who was named after, so they should change it to the St. Prue choke. But I was thinking, you, even if he's used it more, you can't replace the guy who created the choke. So that's never going to happen, just by the logic. You know, you, you, can't, you can't change Air Jordans to King LeBron's. He's the one who came up with it. Everybody else is imitating him after the fact. And that was an impressive win. It highlighted to me once again just how limited Ovink St. Prue's skill set is, and it, and. I hate to get on MMA co corners and coaching, but this is a guy who's one of the who's been one of the best athletes in the division for what ten years now in two different organizations, and it's like he's plateaued in his skill set. There's no cohesion. There's no structured structured offense, structured defense, structured counter game in his whole system of fighting. He can do like a jab here or a counter kick here or a counter hook there or a reactive takedown or submission here, but if you and you being a grappler, you know this better than me. When you watch him grapple in extended exchanges, it's not like you see the you see the structure. You see him going from point A to point B like an anaconda, slithering, slithering. And you, then you see the whole choke. You can kind of follow it from A to Z. With him, it's like he's getting outworked. He's getting roughed up. He's getting pinned down. There's some kind of scramble, and then he gets a submission. Like he finds a submission, which is a talent in itself. 
but it's not a replicable talent. It's not the way you would teach a student of yours. You wouldn't teach them to just get in some scramble and grab a submission because there's no guarantee you're going to win that scramble because you're not one of the best athletes. You don't have his range or his frame. You have to find a structured, disciplined, controlled manner of moving from move to move, position to position to get the submission, not to just hope you find it. And with his striking and his wrestling and his grappling, it's all it's all attribute based. If he wasn't the athlete he was, he wouldn't have half the wins he has in the UFC. He wouldn't even be in the UFC because his whole style of fighting is so mishmash and hodgepodge in setups, executions, and and everything in between. It, it's amazing he's gotten this far. It's like almost pure talent with like some sprinklings of skill sets in it. And it's stunning to me that a talent a talent of his caliber has been essentially wasted. He's been a top top seven fighter for almost the entirety time he's been in the UFC. And he's only gotten to one title fight because he can never put it together well enough to consistently be elite light heavyweights. I think a part of it is the fact that his opponents don't respect the position. I think that's a well, big piece of it, that they don't respect that whole, they don't respect that position and how that's they're true, supposed but to defend that. You're, you're a grappler, but I mean, like, when you see high-level grapplers, like, you see Maya, you can see him, you can see the wheels turning in his head, you see the progression. And you're, you've got a better eye for it than me. When I see St. Prue grappling, I don't really see the progression. I see people getting lazy in positions and him being able to be a good enough athlete with long enough arms and enough body control where he can just snatch it. It ain't like he, one, two, three, snatch. It's one to five, snatch. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's not replicable. If you're teaching a grappler, I wouldn't teach a gra- kid who's grappling how to grapple like over in St. Prue. It doesn't work. It doesn't work for somebody who's not a top-end athlete. It only works because it's him. Yeah, that's actually true. It, it, like he he finds his way to it in the oddest of, at the oddest of times, and just gets it to work. It is it's it's pretty hilarious sometimes. So I still think it's funny that the way everybody reacts. Like there's no way this can happen again, and it happens again. What is this for, right? Yeah, that's one thing. Yeah, I mean, if anything, he's he's made a name for himself in mixed martial arts. He moving down in history. He can always hang his hat on that thing. Like yeah, y'all said I was nothing. I have that's like getting four go-go plotters. Who who's ever done that in MMA? Like that'd be amazing. I'd be like, what? You're like a legend, you know? Like four inverted triangles. That's just never gonna happen. Not at the highest level. Not at not the UFC level. Hell, not even a Bellator level. That'd be impressive. Yeah, no, it, that that definitely be pretty hilarious. Um, and uh, so, the last thing I want to talk about real quick ahead. was Landsberg versus Chasen. Macy had a really big chance to beat a fairly established fighter who's got a name and has got some wins over accomplished fighters. And she just basically got out experience. She tried to bully her. She tried to rush her. She tried to overwhelm her with big spots of offense. And she essentially ran out of ideas. She's engaging in clinches with a girl who's known as the Elbow Queen and a former Muay Thai world champion, I suppose. She can't take her down. She's getting taken down. She's not showing any real competence in defense on the feet or in clinch exchanges or in takedown defense. I mean, she just got walked down. She got walked down by a season, an older, slower, less, and probably more durable, but just not as athletic fighter. She basically just got, she got out experience. She ran out of ideas. In all her fights, she has these big moments, which turn fights and allow her to get submissions and allow her to finish people. She... Lena Landsberg was just two seasons. She didn't give her the big moments she wanted. And when Kaysen couldn't, wasn't given the spots to be effective, she didn't know how to create them. And her team's got to go back to the drawing board and really work on developing a structured and focused offense and game plan for her to create openings. If somebody's not dumb enough to give them to you, what can you do to create them? No jab, 
no feints, no overhand to takedown, no takedown to overhand, just real straight ahead stuff. And that works fine against girls you're better athletes than, girls you're bigger than, girls who are just not very good. But against anybody with any common sense and any sort of experience level, it's it's not going to work. And she got exposed very badly. So I'm hoping that her corner takes this to heart, maybe takes six months off, really work on some triggers and some counters, and then bring her back. But most likely they're just going to rush her into another fight, and she's going to win a couple, and then she's going to face a certain caliber opponent and get wiped out again. But here's the hoping. Where do you think her ceiling ends? Where do you think once once we look back two years down the line, where do you, where do you think her ceiling goes? In her division, her ceiling should be at least a top seven, a top five fighter. It's just such a thin division. And she's got some athletic ability. She's got some size. She's got a good frame. I mean, Betch Cohea got to a top top three spot. But Betch Cohea is a smart fighter. She understands the process of fighting. And she understands how to create openings, how to find openings, how to manipulate the time and the ebb and the flow of a fight. Jason had no feel for it. For a person who's fought as much as she had, not that she's fought a ton, but she been fairly active she has no feel for it she had no idea how to create an opening unless it was given to her and you can't operate it like that unless you're a spectacular athlete like an anthony pettis or an Ovin st prue she is not she should be a girl who can work herself up to the top seven top five but if she does not address this inability to to react to what's in front of her to add some layers to her game plan and her approach she might never be a top 10 bantamweight and bantamweight's a weak division but it's very likely that if she doesn't get it together, she won't get any higher than maybe 12 or 13. And people tell me, you know, she's that kind of girl. It doesn't matter what kind of girl you are. It matters if the people around you can direct you and train you properly. You can be the smartest fighter in the world. If you're, if you're camped a bunch of idiots, uh, you're going to be an idiot in the cage, too. You're being trained by people stupider than you. So I'm not saying her camp's terrible. I'm saying they have some work to do because she's been exposed. And, you know, once they write the book on you, she gets another loss like that. Okay, well now it's a bestseller, and now you got a real heart, an uphill battle. So let's talk about another fight that might help us write the book on some um, on two important middleweights, where we have Robert Whitaker and Israel Adesanya, because these two, this fight here is very important to this division, I, and I think I think I don't think this is the last time we're going to see these two guys fight. Um, obviously, this fight is for the the title. We know a lot about Whitaker in a sense that we've seen more of him, but he's been out of the cage for such an, such an extended period of time. But he hasn't been, uh, I want to say, what's the word? He hasn't been sitting on the sideline completely. I mean, he's been wrestling. He just did some ADCC trials not too long ago. So he's been active, but it's interesting to see what his growth may be now that he's stepping back into the octagon with a very dangerous striker. On the other side, we have Adesanya, who we don't quite know all we need to know about this guy. We've seen, we saw him in a scrap, thankfully, against Kelvin Gastelum last time he was out, a fight that he had to dig deep in and almost lost. Uh, what do you think both of these guys have to offer to each other differently than what we've seen in the past uh, come this Saturday? Well, the biggest thing is both guys have been beating up on, to a certain degree, less accomplished strikers. The thing in mixed martial arts, most fighters aren't strikers. They're really transition grapplers. The level of grappling and wrestling in mixed martial arts is world-class. It's elite. The level of striking in mixed martial arts is like regional level overall. Like there's just not many high level strikers in there. And there's not people who take enough time to understand the craft 
to apply it in an intelligent manner where you have to really respect it. A lot of guys get by on athleticism and toughness. Kevin, Kelvin Gassman, for example, kind of tricky offensively, but really kind of one note and just terrible defensively. He's fast. He hits hard. He can take a good shot. He throws a lot of punches. That's the secret to his game. There's, it's straight up and down meat and potatoes. Israel Adesanya, the biggest thing he's facing in Robert Whitaker is a guy who can do both things. Derek Brunson is a guy who grapples, wrestles, or he punches. He doesn't transition very well against people who he doesn't have a clear athletic advantage against or pe- against people who, are, who aren't one-dimensional. When you have a guy who can wrestle and grapple, he tends to get wild. He tends to get defensively sloppy. He tends not to be able to complete takedowns or not be able to maintain control when he gets them. When, he, when um, Israel fought uh, Brad Tavares, Brad Tavares is just a guy who throws volume. He can kickbox a little, he can box a little bit, but he's all volume and toughness. If you're fighting a world-class striker with range and a whole set of tools from long-range kicks and punches to clinch work, and your best attribute is you come forward, and I told you about this fight when it happened, you, t- you, you come forward, you're tough, and you throw a lot of punches, that's a recipe for disaster. And it was a recipe for disaster. He got toasted. Kelvin Gaslam, another guy who's a high-level wrestler in college or junior college, big, strong, physical, throws a lot. Gets by on toughness, aggression, and physicality. Once again, setting himself up against a guy who likes to counter, controls range pretty well, decent in the clinch, and has a bunch of long-range weapons he can chop you up from before you can get in the positions you want to get into. Against Robert Whitaker, he's facing a guy who may not be a pro boxer or a world-class boxer, but a guy who has an established approach to boxing. He's committed to the jab. He knows how to throw check hooks. He can pressure a little bit. He can fight off the back foot. He can stand his ground. He'll attack the body. He'll set up combinations. He set up individual strikes. He uses feints, footworks, and distance management. So for, for once, Israel's going to be facing a guy who has a clear technical advantage over in the boxing range. The only other time he did that was when he faced Anderson. But Anderson, at his age, can't put bursts of offense together as, as dynamically as he used to. He's a half-step slow now. And he can't throw as much as he used to in those big spots. He used to explode with 15, 16 shots. He can't do that anymore. His timing used to be a little bit more fluid. He used to be a little bit more explosive so he could slip and slide on knee shots. He can't do that anymore. But in the few spots that Anderson Silva got going, he was doing work against Adesanya with his jab. He was able to walk Adesanya into shots. Adesanya couldn't pick his shots and control the distance and control the pace the way he wanted to because Anderson was fooling him with feints, with jabs, and with counter shots when he came in. Robert Whitaker is, to a degree, even though he's a different sort of fighter, he has the skill set to do those things. So for once, he's going to be facing a guy who's not afraid to strike with him. He's going to face a guy with enough seasoning and enough technical development that he can expose him in spots. Because while Israel Adesanya is a better overall striker, as far as pure boxing goes, Israel Adesanya is not particularly great. Not not great on the inside defending shots and rolling with them. Not great at mid-range. His advantage is going to be his long range, his timing, and his ability to manipulate distance. But if Robert Whitaker can take that away, the boxing comes into play. When the boxing comes into play, that opens up the wrestling. So for the first time in a long time, Israel's going to have to face somebody who can not just strike a little bit, not just wrestle, but can blend the two. So he won't just be like, oh, I'm defending the strikes, I'm safe from here. Yeah, you slipped under this shot, you slipped under that shot, are you ready for the takedown? Yeah, you sprawled out the takedown, but instead of me just being sprawled out, I'm coming up body, body, head. Now he has to worry two dimensions instead of one-dimensional approach. Technically three dimensions, but we'll just say two dimensions right now. Uh, for Whitaker, the biggest thing is he's rusty. I know he's been competing in other stuff, but he hasn't been competing in mixed martial arts. 
Luckily for him, Adesanya is more of a pure striker, but he's also one of the better strikers in the division. He's long. He's one of the better athletes. He's got timing. And even though I don't think he's particularly durable, he has heart. He's willing to go out on his shield, and he can bite down and exchange if necessary. And he's very sharp with his shot. So if Rob gets too wild or he overextends on his offense, it'll be a short night. But the problem, the problem in that is I just don't think Israel's the kind of guy who will stand his ground continuously. So the, the question is, is Rob's rust going to be enough for Israel, Israel to exploit any gaps in the, in the connection between his grappling and his striking? Because if he has hesitancy, that's where Israel's going to get him. He has to be smooth in transition, smooth in entry, smooth in exit. If he's not, he's going to pay a very high price for that. And given the fights he's been into, I don't know how much his body can take at this stage. He's been in some very, very punishing wars. And it's, it's shown in his inaction in recent times. So I'm very, it's a, it's a very, it's a 50-50 fight. It's a 50-50 fight to me. So let me ask you this then. Out of everything you just outlined, you outlined kind of like the strategies for both of these two men and why it's dangerous for each individual. Where do you see this fight taking place the most? On the feet or on the mat? And if, and depending upon where you see it taking place, who has a better, who has the advantage? Well, overall striking, I'd say Israel probably is a better striker. Longer winged weapons. He's got the knees, got some elbows, at distance and range. He's kind of got a funky, awkward style. He seems to be harder to hit than Robert Whitaker. Whitaker's gotten hit by a lot of people. I just a lot of people have hit him. Of course, he's faced better strikers than Adesanya, but let's just say that Adesanya at range is a little bit harder to hit. But the fight has to take place on the feet early. If it gets to a position where you're just mindlessly chasing takedowns or Israel senses that you're looking for the takedown exclusively, that, that it sabotages your stand-up defense, it sabotages the effectiveness of your striking. You have to be committed enough to your striking to make someone react to it for you to get the takedown. That's why Rashad Evans always had a hard time because he threw all those feints. People saw the feints coming. They read his timing. So they didn't have to respect it. You have to make them respect it. And because Whitaker is confident in his boxing and confident in what he can do with his hands, I believe it will. I believe the fight is going to take, the large majority of the fight should take place on the feet because he's going to have to risk taking some heat. He's going to have to risk taking some punishment to get to Adesanya on the feet and to get into any position possible to really take him down. Because Adesanya is going to be circling, fainting, cutting in angles, pivoting, anything he do, rolling through takedowns to get back to his feet. So you're going to have to put something on him and get your respect on the feet before you have any chance of doing anything to him on the ground. And Adesanya is not, not terrible on the ground either. And, and Whitaker is not the greatest submission fighter that I've ever seen. So I, I believe the fight is going to take, take large parts on the feet. It's going to be terminal on the feet. The work Robert does on the feet, whether it's one big punch or one quick feint that sets up the takedown, is going to determine how successful he is in getting to the spots he needs to get to to take Israel down. And, and one last thing, against Gasolum, people were thinking Israel was kind of limited because Gasolum isn't a good striker. He had that garbage-ass jab, and he was chopping his Adesanya out with it. But the fact of the matter is, Kelvin's a guy who can't create openings, and that's what helps, that's what helps Adesanya. Kelvin, Kelvin can't create openings, and he can't, he can't capitalize on them because he can't put shots together. He can do one of two things, throw the high kick, throw the low kick, throw the jab. He can't put everything together which makes him a limited threat. Robert Whitaker can put combinations together. He can transition to the wrestling. That's what's going to help him against Adesanya because he can create openings by the same token because Adesanya's length 
and his comfort in striking and his rhythm, his off rhythm, his staccato flow to how he strikes, he can create openings. And if Robert isn't super sharp, it's going to be very hard to, to avoid those long-range strikes that are like sniper light in their accuracy. And if he starts getting into a mood where he finds his rhythm and he can pot shot Robert and Robert's not super sharp, it's going to be a long night for him. Because once he gets frustrated on the feet, it effectively will take away any wrestling threat that he has. So he has to establish himself on the feet early and often. Interesting, man. How, how are you uh, as excited for this fight as much as the MMA community seems to be? I'm very, I'm very excited because it's guys who Adesanya, you know, we always talk about people being poster boys and poster girls. You have to admit, he, didn't, he came in with some fanfare, but he's really made his name the old-fashioned way. And people who keep saying, well, you know, it's all about this, about that, he talked trash, true, but he came and he backed it up. He fought everybody he could. He ran through them. He didn't avoid any fights. Whatever they offered him, he took it, and he put on enough of a show to put himself in position to compete for the legitimate world title. And you have to respect, I mean, he's fought so often in the past year and a half. And he's consistently fought an ascending level of fighter. He isn't taking one step back. He fought a guy outside the top 10, fought a guy in the top 10, fought a guy in the top 7, fought a guy who was in the top 5, then he fought a guy who was in the top 3. And now he's going for number 1, all in ascending order. Regar- regardless of how overdramatic you think he is, because he lives for iconic moments, moments that will live forever, the fact of the matter is he came and he did the job that, that people expect fighters to do. Fight the best opponent you can and move on to the next one. And I was concerned earlier that he would fight a too high a level of guy and he wouldn't be able to go backwards. But what the hell do I know? He fought the highest level guy in Tavares and he hasn't looked back yet. So I got a question. I just realized, was his last fight um, a for the interim title? The, the fight with yeah. uh, Kelvin? Castle, yes. Okay, okay. I couldn't remember that or not. Um, Last last piece about this fight here. Come Saturday, Sunday morning, do we have a new champion? Man, it's really hard for me to even think that. Well, like I I see all the ways that uh, Robert gets in trouble, but you know I I'm really really weird about people who haven't fought in a long time. I know people say ring rest doesn't exist, and I mean like Dominic Cruz. Well, look, I beat T.J. Dillashaw. Well, T.J. Dillashaw hadn't fought a guy who had any defense at all. So that was the first time he, he'd ever dealt with that before. T.J. Dillashaw is easy to hit. You exploited holes that, for some reason, nobody's exploited for the entirety of his run. That was an easy fight to call. But I think ring rust is real to an extent because you're not in there taking live shots, especially when you're coming off of a severe injury like a, like a uh, hernia. I mean, that, that's, not, that's not something to be taken lightly. You know? and, who, and who's to say that Robert's at 100% right now? We don't know. He might not be able to pull out of the fight because it's in his country and it's the biggest event there. If he's hurt right now, he's not pulling out of that fight. Too much money on the line. Too much of a platform for other fighters. He has to go through it. He ain't, he ain't selling out on his own show. So I have no idea what kind of what kind of health he's in, except what his trainers tell us. But remember before he pulled out of the fight with Kelvin, they told him he was 100% then too. So uh, I'm, I'm going to say Robert should win this. He, he's a better boxer. He's got the broader skill set. He's faced the better level of opposition, better strikers, better wrestlers, better grapplers, more accomplished fighters. Um, Adesanya has fought some very favorable matchups. Whitaker has not. But it's very hard for me to pick, given I don't know his health condition and I don't know how sharp he is. But it, going off his physical accomplishments, 
his level of opposition and how he's won and the manner he's won against the different type of opponents he's won against, I'm going to say that Whitaker pulls it out. But if he gets if he gets iced, I can't say I'm shocked by that either. And if he's not 100, percent it's it's going to be a real rough fight for him. He's been injured a lot, a lot, a lot. You don't know when he's going to fall apart again. And this is the guy you can't fall apart against. So let's talk about this co-main event where we have Al Iaquinta versus Dan Hooker. And I think this is more of an opportunity for Hooker than it is for Iaquinta. I didn't even know that this fight was booked on this card. What are your thoughts about this fight here? And what is on the line for both men coming into Saturday? Um, with Iaquinta, what's on the line for him? Is he still considered a top 10-ish tight lightweight? If he loses to Hooker, Hooker's a good fighter, but Hooker, Hooker got clearly dominated by Edson Barboza. It wasn't even close. And it seems like when Hooker gets to a certain level of opposition, Daniel Hooker doesn't seem to be nearly as, as successful as you would think a guy of his, um, a guy with his pedigree would be. So if Iaquinta loses his fight, it's a fairly big step back for him. Because the only real wins he has recently, he beat Sanchez, he beat Kevin Lee, which, and I know everybody's really impressed by that, but that that's not an impressive win when you really look back at it, and um, and then he beat uh, and then he lost the he lost the cowboy he he lost the Khabib he lost the cowboy against Khabib he put up a good fight he lasted the whole fight that's really impressive I guess against Cowboy he just got systematically dismantled he got exposed at every range and in every space and every area of the fight he was he he was competitive early and he was essentially dominated the rest of the fight. So if he loses this fight, this is kind of a big setback for him. I think he'd be close to finding his way outside of the top 10 and having to be three to four fights out from being considered for any real lightweight contention. The division's so deep that any sort of loss sends you tumbling down the rankings. For for Hooker, I think this is the fight that Hooker should win, to be honest. I think they think they think he, they think they have a star in Hooker, and they think they can take the next step. And Iaquinta, at this stage, to me, he's a guy with a name. But given his inactivity, he's really more of a guy who's gotten by on competitive losses than a guy who's had such dynamic wins since he's been back. So if Hooker loses, I don't know that it really changes a lot about him. I think he's where he is. I think if Iaquinta loses, it's going to put him in a position where he's not going to be able to get the fights he wants to get or call people out the way he wants to call them out. So I, I think it's a lot more on the line for Ally Quinta. For Hooker, we've kind of seen him go back and forth. We don't, nobody really thinks of him as elite, and he's never been positioned or ranked as such as an elite type fighter. Iaquinta has actually had that had that on him a little bit, so I think it's a little bit more riskier fight for him. Yeah, I think it's definitely more of a risky fight for Iaquinta coming off of a position where he was basically in title contention had he defeated uh, Donald Cerrone, but he was unable to get that job done. I was looking at this card as a whole. Um, is this a good card to you? Uh, we, we, it is not. We talked a lot about the, the the main event, but I sat down today as I was preparing the agenda for the show, and I'm like, this isn't actually that good of a card from top to bottom. It, it's not. It's basically being – I mean, no offense to the co-main event, but I don't know. I wouldn't be particularly excited about seeing Ally Clinton in a co-main event. I wasn't excited for Ally Clinton in a, in a main event. It wasn't far Cowboy Cerrone. I mean, to be honest, he's he's gotten main events because one, because he lost competitively to Khabib, and people thought he was a quick shortcut to uh, to title contention. Cowboy thought it. Kevin Lee thought it. Kevin Lee got beat. Cowboy didn't. But he's not really 
a needle mover. His fights are exciting, but they're not kind of like must-see TV. So I don't really think he belongs in the And that's nothing against him. He's a good fighter. He seems like a good guy, but that's not a co-main event that's sexy. That doesn't help sell anything. Like, if the main event fell out and the main event was Hooker versus Iaquinta, do you know what sales would be like? I'd be canceling my ticket right then. Um, it's just not. It's basically all built around Adesanya, Whitaker. They're, they're, going the, they're, they're doing the thing that Dana said they would never do. They're going the boxing model. This is a Mayweather fight. Mayweather's going to fight some guy who's a big fight, so he's going to have a car full of guys you don't know about and you don't care about. And the reason you're coming in is for the main event. And that's essentially what's happening with this fight. It's the same thing that happened with Yari Rodriguez versus uh, Jeremy Stevens. It's the same thing that's been happening with a bunch of events they've had, even the Cannoneer uh, Hermanson fight. It's not a real, it, it's fights getting by on the star power, the storylines of the two people in the main event. The card itself is not worth the, the paper it's printed on. And this is yet another card. And the worst thing about it is the pay-per-view that they're putting behind a paywall, another paywall for people to watch. They're hoping that the historic nature of the fight, the fact that you have these two dominant middleweights is going to be enough to generate buys. When putting a fully formed, well-structured, well-match-made card together would help them out a lot more. They're basically banking everything on Adesanya selling power, Robert Whitaker selling power. They, they, they didn't put any effort into this card. This is a terrible card. No offense to the fighters. I know this is your career. I know this is your, your fight. But if you were a casual, you would not want to pay $60 for this card. So, yeah, I kind of feel the same way, man. Um, I think it's, it's a great main event that I believe has the potential to leave us shocked and talking for an extended period of time. But everything else on this card, I'm like, mm, okay, we'll see how it goes. And then... It, even if they're great fights, and you know, because sometimes cards under overperform, the fact of the matter is most of them aren't important fights. I mean, Hooker and Iaquinta—they're on the lower end of the lightweight division. So this win isn't going to determine the next title contender or the next top five fighter. It, it doesn't determine much anything. Tie to Avosa, how many fights has he lost? He's not a top, really a top ten heavyweight, and heavyweight's super thin. I mean, look at the fights on the card. It—it's got a bunch of guys who were. Maybe 10, if I'm being generous, more like 13 to 15 ranked type fighters or local fighters. Not, not people that people want to see. Not really high-level fights. Wait, what, Megan Anderson's fighting on it? She's on a two-fight losing streak, and she's been clearly dominated in them. Jake Matthews? Nobody's begging to see a Jake Matthews fight. I mean, it, I'm glad these guys are getting an opportunity to fight on a big card, but most of them are getting able to fight on that card because of where they're from or the connections they have in that country. It's not because they're legitimately high-ranked, high-skilled fighters who are going to be determining the direction of their division with these fights. So these fights might be good, but they're, they're, not, they're not going to be very important fights that determine anything about the direction of any division or contenders or top 10 fighters. They're just fights to fill a card to get you to the main event. And if this main event falls through, all hell is going to break loose. I can tell you that. Yeah, this is one of those showcases where the like, and I was saying this when we talked about Paulo Costa a couple weeks back. Um, I hope that his management looked at him and said, "Hey, stay in shape, stay down, stay down on, on your weight," and they made it clear. I, I would, I would be on the phone with Dana. Hey, look, if something happens to Robert Whitaker the day of, the day before, we're ready to step in. There's no reason why we can't, we we shouldn't be surprised if that happened again. But if I was Paulo Costa's, um, management team, they would be I would be on, on the horn right now making it clear that he's prepared to step in 
uh, if this fight falls apart. As much as Paul Costa has been talking trash about wanting to knock out Adesanya, I don't see how you're not ready to, ready to go if the opportunity promotes itself. You have to be ready. So I wanted to get your uh, thoughts on another fight for this weekend where we have um, Andre Korshkov, Korshkov against uh, Lorenz Larkin. This is the main event of Bellator 229 on Saturday. What do you think about this fight here, man? Because um, Larkin is a guy, you know, he was on the cusp of title contention at 170 in the UFC before they let him go, and he struggled since then. I can't, I don't know what his what his Bellator run has been since, but he's definitely struggled since then, and he hasn't looked the same. Uh, what are your thoughts about this fight here, and how do you see it playing out? Yeah, I first of all, if I could see a fight that I thought would be interesting, just because the style and athletic nature of the fighters, I don't see how I didn't get MVP versus Lorenz Larkin. I I think that just be an interesting match because they're both high-end athletes. They're both people who use kind of unique approaches, um, uh, unique approaches to striking, kind of freestyle and unorthodox. So I, I'd really like to see that fight. I don't know that we're ever going to get it, but I, I don't see how that fight hasn't been made yet. As far as Larkin, Larkin's a good fighter. He's athletic, he's dynamic, he's creative with his strikes. But a lot of the success he had was because he had huge athletic advantages of people. He's so quick, he's so dynamic, he, he's so diverse in his striking. There's there's some holes in how he strikes. His boxing's not really great. He backs it up in, in straight lines. He can stand tall in the pocket. He can stand tall while under duress. Those things are never good when you're being pressured. That's what happened against Paul Daly. Standing tall got knocked out. Um, I think he came in thinking maybe he have a little bit easier go in Bellator than he than he did and it, and like I said he's a big name signing so they're putting him with big name fighters from one through five Bellator has got UFC level guys uh, really really skilled level guys and those guys can beat anybody and that's that's essentially what he found out I mean that's essentially what he found out uh, Korshikov is a better wrestler better grappler and he, I don't think he's quite the athlete that Lorenz Larkin is, but I definitely think his striking is a little bit more what puts together, a little bit more defensively sound, a little bit more structured. I think he's a little better with his hands. I think he's a little more durable, and I think he's a little bit more disciplined in what he does. A lot of Lorenz Larkin stuff is a lot of distraction, deception, uh, um, getting you out of position, and then punishing you. I think to win this fight... Lorenz will have to fight a very disciplined fight, a mistake-free fight, and I can't say I've really seen him do that often. I'm not saying he can't do it, I just haven't seen him do it a whole lot. Uh, so I'd have to favor Korshkov, especially if he gets his hands on him and, and gets him to the ground. I, I think he would clearly dominate there. So the question is just a matter of how how controlled and how mistake-free can Lorenz Larkin be? And if he gets put under duress, does he have the poise to get out of there without creating an opening? Does he have the durability to bite down and fight his way out of a corner without exposing himself to a knockout shot? I don't know. He hasn't seemed to do very well in those instances. And against Korshkov, a guy who makes very, very few mistakes, I, I don't know that he's capable of, of doing that. True, true, true. Um, I actually have a friend, a good friend of mine, that's debuting on this card. He's, um, I don't know if it's in the prelims or the postlims. He's 2-0. and Fighting a debuting fighter, he fought in Bellator a couple months back. Um, and he got every, he got all the connections. He'll fight on the big show. Tr- 
trying to, man. We're trying to get this, uh, you know, we're trying to work our connects as it usually is. Um, yeah, I keep getting invited to them, but I don't know. I'm like, dude, I got kids. I, King Mo invited me and a couple other fighters. Some Brazilian people were like, hey, you helped our fighter. You want to come to the show? And I'm like, dude, I got kids. Man, I can't just be disappearing. <laughs> no offense. I want to go, but I can't just be, hey, I'm going to be gone for the weekend in Atlanta. I'm going to be gone in Houston for whatever. Like, I, it just doesn't work that way, man. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, it does not work that way. True, true. Um, I had a question about the Triple G fight this weekend. Uh, go ahead and talk to me about that, man. I know that that's more your space than it is mine, but it's pretty. I mean, Triple G stepping back in, in, into the cage. What are your thoughts? Well, he's the first time he's be fighting a legitimate opponent. He fought a an, a, an undefeated guy, the guy who was much of a threat, Steve Rolls, before. Uh, he went to the Canelo fight that fell through. So now, now he's in a position where he's going to have to take difficult fights to create interest to possibly force Canelo into a trilogy fight with them. Because that's fight he wants. That's a money fight. That's fight he wants. And he's going to have to do something to create fan interest because so far he's been sitting out the large majority of the year, except for that one fight. Uh, some people are going to say he's waiting for the money grab. I personally think he's trying to get acclimated to his new trainer, um, Jonathan Banks. He's training Golovkin now. Golovkin replaced Abel Sanchez. And I think we'll see more of a aggressive power-based boxing fight from Golovkin when he fought Sanchez, when he was trained with Sanchez. Sanchez was very big on single shots, one, two, three shots, loaded up power, real sharp placement, not a lot of volume, not a lot of fluidity, not a lot of range control, not a lot of activity. And Golovkin used that a lot because that's what got him his fans because he was knocking guys out with these big shots of the body, these right hooks, these right hook, left hooks, these left hooks, overhand, whatever he's putting together, he's putting guys away. But when he faced the biggest threats of his career, he, he always went back to more of a mobile power boxing, defensively sound power back, back boxing approach. And with Jonathan Banks, he's starting to get back to that. He's being more fluid. He's being more efficient on his feet. He's moving around more. He's getting earlier starts in his rounds. He's changing up his whole regimen. So I expect to see if not physically the best version of Golovkin, I expect to see technically and strategically a little bit different version of Golovkin, which is going to be needed because the guy he's facing, he's trained by uh, Andre Rogier, and Andre Rogier has faced Golovkin three times. He had Curtis Stevens, he had Danny Jacobs, and now he has Sergei Derochenko. So now that's going to be his third fighter facing Golovkin. So, so I already know Golovkin's lost a step athletically. I know he can't possibly be as durable as he used to be, and even... No, he hits hard still. You lose that quick twitch. You can't land the way you want to unless it's a clean opening. So he's going to have to have some new tricks to throw these guys off of him because he's facing a very tough, come forward, powerful, physical fighter. I believe that Golovkin's got too much class for him. I believe he's going to start the round a little bit faster. I believe he's going to be committed to the body attack. And I believe, as always, you're going to see that jab stabbing and cutting that guy up. So there's a chance. If Golovkin falls off a cliff, it'll be an upset. But I expect to see Golovkin get a dominant uh, uh, decision win, possibly a stoppage in the mid to late rounds. Good thoughts there, sir. Good thoughts there. Uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. I don't have anything else on my agenda for tonight's show. Why don't you let everybody know what, what you're working on, my friend? Um, just working on my uh, the, the installments of my... Uh, what your camp should be doing. Like I said, it's going to be a guidebook for young fighters or maybe even veteran fighters or maybe people who are just training people. Um, one thing Trevor Whitman said, and he said on our show and he said other places, he goes, 
I don't know it all. So if somebody comes to me with an opinion that's educated and has some, some thought behind it, even if I don't agree with it, I'm going to explore it myself. I'm going to research it myself, and I'm going to see if there's some legitimacy to that, and I might make an adjustment on my own. Now, Trevor Whitman, who's had multiple ranked fighters, he's had multiple world champions in different organizations, worked with some of the best of all time, one of the best trainers of all time. If he's that open to critique or that open to suggestion, at least willing to contemplate and discuss it, I don't understand how anybody who hasn't accomplished half of what he's accomplished is unwilling to listen and take some tips or some direction in how they're handling a fighter. You can train a fighter. You can train fighters for 20 years. Most fighters aren't going to be fighters for 20 years. you got to get the most out of them and keep them as safe as possible in their brief career. And these are just things I'm going to be talking about that I see from guys I've worked with and guys I've just observed that have gotten their fighters beaten up or shortened their careers or had the world-class talent beaten out of them at an early stage that hopefully younger fighters can avoid and maybe younger trainers can take to heart and help to better their system and better their athletes. Good stuff there, sir. Um, I'll be covering as much uh, professional wrestling as possible as I usually do, looking into mixed martial arts as well. Um, yeah, man, this is a big time in combat sports. We just got a new wrestling promotion that kicked off last night. I was there for the live first shows. It was pretty uh, fantastic. Um, yeah, man, this is a busy time, dude. I, I, mean, I got so much work to do. This is going to be out of control. You, you, you got a lot of work to do? Dang, nothing new. It's like Tuesday morning. <laughs> If you told me you, you had no work, I'd be like, oh, man, what happened? But you tell me you got work. That's, that's like telling me I'm a black person. I, I already knew that. <laughs> yeah, man, it is, there's so much to go on, dude. Like, there's so much going on. I, I just sat here and, and I got to finish watching the show now to do another podcast, hopefully maybe tonight or maybe early tomorrow morning. We'll see what happens. I'm telling you, man, I I admire your hustle, dude. I admire it. And, and nobody, anybody tells you that you're lazy, you let him let me know. I'm just swinging on him. I ain't saying nothing. I'm just swinging. Hey, that's, and I'll follow up. That's how we want to do it. Hey, don't tell you. MMAs, we stick together, man. We, you can't go after one of us without the other one of us stepping in. So just know that. People on Twitter, you ain't going to turn me against my man, Raphael. You, you ain't going to try to tweet me in a conversation. Oh, you know this guy that's talking crazy. Nah, man. Can't go with you on that one. That, that's that's the fam over here. So you got to stay over on that side. I got to support my man over here. That's how we roll, man. So with that being said, we're going to go ahead and close out, and we will be back here next week. All right, guys, everybody. Look for us on YouTube, FM, Anchor, Anchor FM, Spotify, I think, and uh, Apple, oh, excuse me, iTunes. On all four formats, you got any questions, contact us on Twitter. We would gla- gladly answer any of all questions. If you have a subject or somebody you want us to focus on, just hit us up. We'll take care of you. But y'all have a great night. Raphael. Pleasure as always. Yes, sir. I'll holler at you, brother.